Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Voxman Music Building, the beautiful new recital hall. Uh, thank you for joining us. Tonight on World Canvas, we're introducing the topic of the University of Iowa's Spring 2017 theme semester, Our Lives Online. The focus is the Internet, the global system of connectedness that has literally made the world smaller. It enables the efficient processing of complex information, the transfer of knowledge and ideas beyond the borders of language and geography, technological advances few would have dared imagine possible mere decades ago, and rapid communication that can save lives, start a revolution, crowdfund research, and play to both our better and worse natures in interpersonal exchange. In this first segment, we're going to talk about how social media is changing the way we communicate and relate to one another. And it's my pleasure to introduce three wonderful guests who are with us tonight. Just next to me is Jennifer Fawcett, who is a playwright, and uh, she works with the Working Group Theater. Thank you for being here, Jennifer. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to her is Katie Hassman, librarian at the University of Iowa Libraries. Thank you. And just next to her is Lena Hill, Senior Associate to the President of the University of Iowa and Associate Professor in the UI Departments of English and African American Studies. Thank you, Lena. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Jennifer, I'd like to go to you first. Uh, I became aware of a play that you had written, which mm -hmm. has now had a couple of national tours, mm -hmm. a play called Out of Bounds. Would you tell us what this play is about and what you were trying to get at when you wrote it? Sure. Um, so, Out of Bounds is a play that is about cyberbullying. And it was um, commissioned, a uh, working group was commissioned by Hancher, uh, wanting to create a piece that would speak to um, young teenagers, basically kids in middle school. Uh, they tend to be um, a, an age group that gets ignored for um, theater. And so we wanted to piece, uh, choose a piece that would speak to them, and that seemed to be a subject that was particularly relevant for that age group. And the piece was created uh, through doing... Um, a whole series of interviews. I interviewed uh, children who had been victims of bullying, uh, their siblings, uh, their parents. I spoke to teachers, social workers, a uh, local police officer who's the liaison with uh, Iowa City Schools. And I also had a lot of people just speak to me online. I sort of put out a, a call online for stories, and just the stories kind of came came pouring in, and so all of those were woven together um, to create, and I created that, a play for these young people, and then out of that, created a sister play, um, also with, under the same title, uh, that also looked at the adult perspective. So the parents and teachers struggling to deal with cyberbullying, and often dealing with their own history of, of bullying. Mm -hmm. Can you give us just a little more a specific description of the, the characters in this play? Sure. So it, the, the story of the play is fiction, fictional, but uh, again, sort of obviously influenced by a lot of my own research and through conversations with a lot of, a lot of people in Iowa City and Cedar Rapids and beyond. Um, and it tells the story of a young woman named Amy who is uh, 13 years old, 14 years old. She's in eighth grade. And she uh, starts at a new school in the middle of the year, which is a very rough thing to do. And she meets two girls, and one of them welcomes her. The other is a little threatened by her. Um, and that one dares her online to post a picture, an inappropriate picture of herself. Um, and Amy responds to the dare. She sends the photo on Snapchat. The photo is captured in a screenshot, and 
sent all over the school, and the bullying begins. So what have you discovered when you have performed this play many places around the country? Uh, What's the uh, feedback? The The feedback has been that it is very real. That's, that's been pretty much across the board. Uh, we've, we've toured at all over Iowa and then done two national tours. And that seems to be uh, pretty unanimous, no matter whether we're in a rural community, in an urban center, um, west coast, east coast, midwest. Um, the kids respond very positively, very openly um, to it. We have a lot of kids approaching the actors afterwards and wanting to speak to them personally. It's interesting, actually. We've had kids want to come up and have a private conversation with an actor and say, I'm being bullied. Or sometimes they say, I am a bully, and this is why, and I don't know, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know what to do. And so um, that's been a really fascinating, really fascinating response. It's a, it's a complex issue that um, I think is often s- simplified into slogans, and that doesn't get at it because everybody knows that bullying is wrong, and it keeps happening. Yeah, you mentioned that in some pre-show conversation yeah. we had, that there is a lot of um, talk that goes on in the schools about bullying being wrong, don't do this, don't do that, uh, report on, on this if, you, if someone's harassing you or whatever. So you said the kids are aware of it, teachers are aware of it, they know that they shouldn't engage in this, but some say they still do. They still do. And that's, I think, what's really interesting. There was a, way, a young woman who I interviewed. Uh, she was 13 years old, and her best friends had turned on her and made her life miserable. And her father shared some of what had been sent to her online. And I don't think I could have handled it. It was so cruel. And... What she said that really struck me was that my friends all know what they're supposed to do, but they're choosing not to. And I think that's the situation for a lot of people, adults as well, because adults bully as well, um, and do it online and in person. I think it's easier online because there's that element of anonymity. Mm-hmm. But um, it's that moment of choice. We, you know, We know how we should behave, but then we make a choice not to. We make a choice not to stand up to something that we don't think is right, or we make a choice to engage with something that we know isn't right. Um, and I'm really interested, you know, as somebody who does theater, I'm really interested in that moment of choice when we, we have to go one way or the other. And I think that's where the complexity, that's where the complexity lies. Mm-hmm. You said that you have also conducted workshops. And you use some of the techniques of the theater of the oppressed. Tell, tell us what the theater of the oppressed techniques uh, are. The theater of the oppressed uh, is a form of, uh, of theater that was created by Augusto Boal. And I am not a theater of the oppressed expert, so I'll put that out there. But um, a lot of what the, this work is doing is using uh, theater games, theater techniques, to help non-actors um, deal with difficult situations. And so one of the workshops that we do is sort of like a rehearsal for life. Um, we, the sort of summarized version of it is that we have um, people, whether they're, we do it with teachers and we also do it with students, um, break them into small groups where they share personal stories of um, bullying. It could be something that they witnessed, something that they took part in, in one way or another. And then they, um, each group acts out one of these stories. 
And then what we do is we take one of those stories and we, we workshop it. We play the scenario as it happened. And then we talk about how could this have been dealt with differently? And maybe somebody raises their hand and says, well, instead of saying this, what if they'd said that? So then we pull them up and have them switch out with the actor uh, who was doing that role, and we try it that way. And um, go back and talk about it. Was that effective? Do you think in real life this would work? Which I think is a really important thing to ask. Because again, and this goes with the slogans, when we're in the environment, in an artificial environment, again, we all know what the right thing to do is. But in real life, you know, in your school, in your cafeteria, on your school bus or on your phone, would you, would you feel that you could do this? And um, we've got into some really, really fascinating conversations with, with young people who fully acknowledge the complexity and say, yes, in this situation, but no, in that situation, and here's why. And um, yeah. really, the goal of the workshop is um, for that conversation to happen, to acknowledge this is complex, and the anti-bullying programs and all that sort of thing can very much come down from above. They can come from your parents and all that sort of thing and from your school. But ultimately, if a culture is going to change, it's going to have to change on the ground level. And that is with, when I'm talking to middle schoolers, that's with you guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you've also been working with the College of Public Health. Yes. We've been involved with the College of Public Health um, from the very beginning uh, of this project, and they've been really fantastic in helping us with research. Um, and one of the things that they're really interested in looking at is um, the effectiveness of art, of using, uh, of using theater to address this issue, because um, the anti-bullying programs have been in the schools uh, for a number of years now, and a lot of the kids who are in school right now have been doing some version of it since kindergarten. And I do think that the, what can happen, not to say that these are not effective, and I think that they, are, they should be in the schools, but by year six or seven, I think you can start to kind of, your eyes sort of glaze over when it's the anti-bullying program. Mm -hmm. And so the question that the College of Public Health researchers had is, um, because kids this age are emotional thinkers, and because theater is accessing them emotionally, does it get at something um, that is more effective? Mm -hmm. And that's a big and complex question and will take many years of studying, but they've been sort of watching and monitoring the schools that we've been working in, um, and I hope that the answer is yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. What happens now with the play? Do you have uh, more... We have one planned. more set of uh, performances, once again with Hancher Auditorium um, in Des Moines uh, next month. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny, we've been all over Iowa, but we haven't been to Des Moines. Mm. So we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're spending several days in Des Moines. I think we're going to be working with five or six different schools. Yeah, great. Wonderful. Thank you for telling us about it. And good, good, good luck with this. And, and Katie, I'd like to bring you into the conversation now. You are a librarian at the UI Libraries, and you teach a course called Being Responsible Online. Uh, why did you and why did the university think it was a good idea to establish this course? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Joan. Uh, so Being Responsible Online is a one-credit online course that we offer in both the fall and spring semesters. 
Um, and it's taught by librarians in my home department, which is research and library instruction. And the course was originally developed um, really uh, from a seed that my supervisor, Kathy Magrell, who heads my department, um, uh, developed when she was talking with um, faculty and instructional staff on campus and recognized a need to teach about um, what we refer to as information literacy in the library world, but things like plagiarism, how to evaluate sources online, um, how to cite sources. And um, these topics, when taught on their own, can be pretty dry. <laughs> um, and so uh, they need to be taught in context. And so um, having this one credit online course allowed us to start teaching about these uh, online practices that we knew were important, not only in academic work, but in students' everyday lives um, within contexts that made sense to them. And so uh, being responsible online, the subtitle of the course is From Facebook to Academic Research. And so what happens in the course is we start to talk about things like plagiarism and evaluating sources, which students' eyes can glaze over when they hear about that in the academic classroom. Um, but if we talk about those topics in a setting like Facebook or other social media sites, um, there's just a bit more relevance. And so um, that laid the groundwork um, for designing the second uh, section of Being Responsible Online, which is uh, debuting this spring semester. In fact, I just was having some wonderful conversations with some of my students um, before the show, but our new section of it is called Being Responsible Online, um, From Trolling to Online Allyship. And so I was really excited to hear you talk, Jennifer, about your experience, um, because what I was seeing when I was teaching the original section of Being Responsible Online was that students were starting to have these conversations about um, bullying and these other forms of online negativity that they were seeing. They were having these conversations in the discussion forum and in their assignments, but in a one-credit online course, as many of you know, there's not a lot of time to dig deep into that. And so I proposed to my supervisor that we develop a, a separate section of being responsible online that could be devoted to these topics. Um, I reached out to some folks on campus who I already know do a lot of great work with these topics. I reached out to um, Linda Kroon, director of RAC, and uh, Trey Yuckley, who works over in um, Center for Diversity and Enrichment, and they've been helping develop the content for that course. So. Um, yeah, that's some background on it. So what do you hope to teach students in this, or, or to bring to the eyes of students in this new course? Yeah, so I think in both courses it's kind of the same. I think one of the big challenges in um, getting people, myself included, as a social media user, uh, as someone who consumes a lot of online information, I think it can be challenging to reflect on our practices online because all of it seems so benign, right? It's so ubiquitous. Um, it's a like here, a share there. It's a quick scroll through a newspaper article here and quickly it dissipates, right? It goes away. And so it can be really challenging um, to promote and provoke reflection that gets students to think critically about their online usage. And so one of my biggest challenges is coming up with ways um, kind of beyond the reflective essay that gets students um, a chance to kind of visualize, um, for lack of a better term, the, the mass of likes, kind of uh, what happens when you like something across a lifetime, right? Um, if that makes sense. 
Um, so if these individual likes are, are ubiquitous, are benign, what does it mean when we have a whole pile of likes? Like, what, what's their impact on our lives and on other people's lives? And so um, a couple of things that we've started doing in the class that have seen some good success um, is that you can actually download all of your Facebook data. Um, that's uh, possible. It's, it's frightening for anyone who's been on Facebook for more than a couple of years. Um, it, it's really a good exercise because you start to see how this, um, this, this accumulated mass of likes, of clicks, um, uh, comes into a large picture. So they have everything. Um, as we know, they have our pictures, but they also have all of everything we've ever liked, everything we've ever shared, and all of it is in a timeline. So you really get to see this. Um, you get this sense of, of what data is out there about yourself. Um, we also do this activity that's called, um, it's based off an add-on for Mozilla Firefox. It's called Light Tracker. And um, I would also recommend everyone try this out. It's, it's, it's alarming and exciting and insightful um, at the same time. But you um, add it on to your Mozilla browser, and um, you just use the browser as normal. And it's tracking all the sites you're visiting, but it's also tracking all the third-party sites that track you. And so one, two, three, four sites, um, you'll see that there's at least two, 300, 400, if not more, third-party trackers. And so that's what I'm talking about in this challenge. Um, and I think you're speaking to this a bit too, Jennifer. It's like, how do, we, how do we get students to kind of tackle these complex topics when so much of what they do and what we do, right, are these kind of very seemingly benign clicks online? And this is an elective course, so it's, it's not... It is. Yeah. What kind of enrollment interest do you have? It's still new, I know, but... Yeah, yeah. so relatively new. Um, the sections fill up. Yeah. Yeah, so we were full, I think, um, before January 1st. Yeah. Yeah, and there's always students waiting to get in, um, which oh, is great to yeah. see. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. Wow. Thank you for explaining it. And, and, um, and now I'd like to go to you, Lena. And uh, we're going to come at, at the story we're going to be talking about from a slightly different um, um, direction. Uh, Lena and her husband, Michael Hill, uh, both uh, professors here at the university, have written a book called Invisible Hawkeyes. I'm sure many of you have read it, many of you have heard of it. And um, I'll ask Lena to tell us a little bit about the book and the inspiration for the book. But the way this ties in, I think, to our conversation tonight is that the people about whom they wrote in this book lived before an era of social media, of individual, uh, an individual person's ability to sort of share good stories or talk about conflict or, uh, you know, prior to the social media era. And I've been talking with Lena about what it might have been like had these, these um, African-American students here at the university prior to the civil rights era, had they lived it in time like the time we're living in now. So tell us about Invisible Hawkeyes. Sure. Um, thank you, Joan. So Invisible Hawkeyes is a collection of essays uh, as well as um, what we call testimonials. And it really looks at the experiences of African-American students at the University of Iowa between the 1930s and the 1960s, an era we describe as the pre-civil rights era. And it's very interesting. Um, many people don't realize that the University of Iowa, or at that time, the State University of Iowa, became a destination for African-American students because many states um, were not abiding by separate but equal and were not allowing African-American students into their institutions of higher education, uh, particularly to seek advanced degrees. So as the NAACP started bringing cases against these states, 
many of them decided to provide funds for the students to go to other states that would admit them rather than to change their own policies. Well, the University of Iowa was one of those institutions. So by word of mouth, many students began to come here, and in particular, come to the arts programs and sports and athletics. So that's what we really focus on, um, the students' experiences in those realms. So it's been very interesting to contemplate um, what their lives would have been like had they had access to social media. And when Joan and I first started thinking about this, one thing I immediately um, considered was the, the issue of community. Um, in talking to many of these alumni and interviewing them and doing our research, one thing we discovered is that even though their time here was often quite difficult because although the university admitted them, there was still segregation. Um, they weren't admitted into the dorms until 1945 and then groups in 1946. Um, they were segregated uh, definitely in the city. They couldn't find places to do their hair or to eat, um, but they could come here. So one thing we found is that many of them had very positive um, memories of their time here, and that was because of the community they formed. Um, for instance, students would find out when new African-American students were going to arrive on campus and would meet them at the train station or bus station so that they could drive them around town to find a place to stay in one of the homes of an African-American local, the Lemmys, the Tates, the Fergusons. Um, these local African-American families would take these students in. But what would it have been like if they could have you know, tweeted that they were on their way to the University of Iowa or if they had Facebook pages? Um, we think now there's Craigslist, there are Airbnbs, there are all these different ways uh, that you could find a place to stay. But really, the quality of the relationships that they formed, I think, would have been really different if they hadn't been forced into those situations where they depended upon each other and became quite intimate and became really a support system for each other. Um, so that was just one of the things that immediately came to mind in thinking about what their experiences would have been like um, if they lived during a moment like ours. Yeah. Tell us about the young woman who uh, received the it was homecoming queen, wasn't it? Uh, she was uh, elected uh, Miss State University of Iowa. That was Dora Martin-Berry. Um, we had the pleasure of hosting her here in October. Um, but she, as a freshman uh, living in Courier, um, she was one of those students who traveled from Texas and remembers being greeted by um, students when she arrived. And uh, she did get to live in Courier with a few other African-American women, and when it, when it came time um, to run for this position, uh, this state, you know, Miss State University of Iowa, uh, a lot of the women encouraged her to run, and so she decided she would. And it's really remarkable. Um, she recalls all of them uh, sharing, bringing all of their dresses to her dorm room because they didn't want her to ever appear in the same dress. <laughs> and so there was this rallying around her, um, and they came up with all kinds of slogans. Uh, but what was also really remarkable was that the other white woman in the dorm ended up voting for her as well when it came time to vote for the finalist that would represent each dorm. Young men actually were the ones who voted and decided who would win. Um, and, and she was elected. And this was a big deal and goes to, I think, the idea of how uh, the University of Iowa was portrayed in the press. It was national news at the time. And there were articles in Look magazine and Jet magazine and in other local magazines, but still one thinks what would it have been like if that kind of news 
um, would have been publicized in all the different outlets that we have now on the internet. Um, if more African-American students may have wanted to come to the University of Iowa uh, upon hearing such news. One of the other testimonials, in, in, in fact, uh, Diana Penny, remembers seeing that story, and she said that was really her inspiration for wanting to come to the University of Iowa, seeing that a black woman could be elected Miss State University of Iowa in 1955. Yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of, um, so many things would have come to light in a different way. You know, the fact that I believe her appearances were not promoted in the way they had been for prior Miss State University of Iowa recipients. It, like many of the stories, it's a story where we can celebrate the openness, the progressiveness of the student body to elect her, and then lament the fact that administrators were loath to show her that same support. Um, for instance, uh, one of the young men who was over the elections committee said that uh, the person who was over them when they were counting tried to get him, tried to dissuade him from publishing the results as they appeared. Um, that he, in, in this, at the same time, there was a, a letter um, to President Hancher and, and it really complimenting um, him on the fact that these students, the student body, had elected her. And he said, well, you know, this isn't an issue I want to get into. Um, and so Dora remembers those moments um, and what it was like to feel that she wasn't given the same kind of um, acknowledgement as previous young ladies who had worn the title of Miss State University of Iowa. Yeah. Wow. Well, I thank you for sharing some little bits of this very, very interesting and incredible story. And I think uh, it's a real um, credit to you and your husband that you were able to capture these interviews and have these essays uh, published. It's great. And I'm afraid we've come to the end of this segment. Thank you to Lena Hill and to Katie Hassman and to you, Jennifer Fawcett. And um, I hope that all of you can stay with us for the second section of this program where we're going to be talking about access to the Internet and the power of influence. All World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, on iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and for University of Iowa International Programs, Thanks very much. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Recital Hall of the Voxman Music Building in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of our three-part series called Our Lives Online. And in this segment, we'll be discussing access to the Internet and the power of influence through online communications. I'm excited to introduce my guests in this segment. Nicholas Johnson, just next to me here, is a former FCC commissioner and an adjunct professor in the University of Iowa College of Law. Thanks for being here, Nick. Thank you, Joe. Mm -hmm. And next to Nick is Kaisa Dalrymple, Assistant Professor in Journalism and Mass Communication here at the University. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Nick, I'd like to talk to you about this whole notion of access, access to the Internet, access to media, whatever. Uh, when, when I was formulating the program to go along with our overall theme, our lives online, I was thinking mostly of access to broadband. What does it mean if you have access? How might you or your children be limited if you don't have access to good internet connections? That was sort of what I had in mind when you and I had a phone conversation. Yes. And you said, well, you know, during the years I've been working in this area of the media, access has meant lots of
of different things, and it might be useful to talk about what access has meant over time. So I'm going to pitch it to you and ask you to fill us in. Well, you give me an open-ended question to the elderly, <laughs> and you don't know what you're going to get back. Uh, I think it's important, but even before we get to the issue of access, to put what we're talking about in a kind of context, because it is the core of what democracy is about. And it's something that's going to always be important to us, but particularly in the, in the years to come. And to know that it is a part of a package of institutions that Jefferson and others had in mind and went about deliberately to create. Starting with free, K well, what became K-12 uh, public education, and then the land-grant colleges. How does that relate? to media, because you need the education first if you're going to be a, a citizen in a democratic society. It was by no accident that one of the primary purposes of K-12 as it became was civics class, training citizens to be what Ralph Nader called the public citizen. Um, so that, that was one institution. Then the question was, how are they going to find out about stuff if they didn't have the money to buy a big library like Jefferson had? Ah, we'll have public libraries to go with our public schools. So anybody, regardless of their wealth, could have access to the riches of kings in terms of literature and books. Then we added a postal system. What does that have to do with it? Well, number one, it enabled citizens to communicate with each other, that, that early version of what today is, is the internet. But more important, and an indication of what they were about, were the special rates for newspapers, magazines, books, which you may have enjoyed in shipping stuff. Why? Because they wanted to encourage the distribution of information. In later years, the same principle was applied with telephone policy, keeping the local phone rates low enough that everybody could have a phone that would connect with the network of all the phones in the country. And then finally, with regard to the distribution of radio and television stations, so that people could have access to what might prove ultimately to be very much less useful to them than what they would find in their public library. But nonetheless, we wanted uh, everybody to have it. The final thing that we needed to make this democracy work, in addition to those institutions of education and libraries and postal, the First Amendment. And I think it's important that we review briefly, and I hope this whole thing takes less than two minutes, um, but that what is it we're trying to achieve with the First Amendment? First of all, it only has to do with government, as you probably know. The, the actual language is Congress, which has been expanded to include every level of government. So the University of Iowa is covered by the First Amendment, as the folks in Jessup occasionally discover from time to time. And the City Council of Iowa City and so forth, as, as well as federal uh, things. But the principles of the First Amendment apply as well to all institutions, corporations and military units and little private businesses and families. And what are some of those? Well, the first is that if you're going to have a self-governing uh, democracy, 
you have to have a First Amendment. You have to have people talking to each other and, and expressing opinions and trying to build, uh, uh, you know, an organization to, to do something. The second thing is sometimes characterized as a search for truth or a marketplace of ideas, the theory being that only by taking all the wraps off and letting people talk and share ideas, uh, not just the language of scientists, but everybody were more likely to come up with the truth. Then there is third, what I call checking value, that is that the media is there to check on abuses within other institutions, primarily government, but also corporations. Uh, that's what investigative reporting is about. And it is, not incidentally, the only industry that is really mentioned in the Constitution, which is why we refer to it as the, the fourth estate. It is, in effect, an, a portion of government, the uniqueness of which is its separation uh, from government, to check on government. Um, and it's being put to a test these days. Um, and then there is the, uh, uh, the matter that I call self-actualization. Uh, uh, someone once said uh, humans are the only species able to talk themselves into difficulties that would not otherwise exist. Uh, we are the talking uh, species. And doing that is what it means to be human. So that even if nobody's listening and it has no impact, if someone has gone through the process of thinking through something and expressing it, that is valuable in terms of their own growth and self-esteem and, and so forth. Uh, and finally, there's what we call safety valve. Uh, people will ultimately be heard. Um, you either give them access to the media and to the megaphone to speak, or they come up with some other way of being heard. As the young man said uh, in Watts after the riots back in the 60s, uh, and there was a lot of uh, burning and breaking into stores and so forth, and he said, maybe what we did last night wasn't right, but nobody ever come down here and talked to us before. Um, so we discovered that, that uh, trying to silence people is not, not very effective. So that's my little introduction to put all this in context and try to put all the emphasis I can behind how terribly important these issues uh, are. Now, in terms of access, as Joan said, we're really talking about two things. One is your access, well, and let's talk pre-digital for a moment. Uh, back in the 60s, your access to mass media to express yourself because you had no First Amendment right to speak via the mass media. You could try to buy a commercial on a radio or television station or a quarter page ad in the paper. They didn't have to sell it to you. You had no right, no legal right to do that. It was a matter of grace. If they chose to invite me onto a show as a guest uh, once before they realized they would never want to do that again. Um, that's, that was, that's their, their choice. So that's your access to the media in the sense of being able to communicate. The other is access in the sense of being able to receive uh, information. And both of these are blocked by a whole variety of 
factors, which would take up more than my rightful amount of time this evening to go through, unless either of you would like to ask me a question about it. Um, yeah, but uh, for example, during the commercial radio and television days, Procter & Gamble had a, a manual for writers for their shows that included uh, the admonition that there should never be anything in any script spoken by any one of the characters that would reflect adversely, not just on Procter & Gamble, but on any business or business practice. My time has expired. Thank you, Amy. Huh? Isn't that Amy? Yeah, yeah, that's Amy. Yeah, that's what right. I thought. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I used to sing a song about an Amy. Yeah. <laughs> well, regarding access to the internet, if we could just kind of. I, I, I think we need to bring in this expert. This, this young lady really knows about this stuff. I'm just telling you stories from the past. Well, that's a, that's a good opportunity to jump to you, Kaisa. And. Yeah. and um, we have talked about the access issue when we got together before the program, but I think that one of the things that you particularly study is how within social media, this kind of world we're living in now, um, how networks are formed, how persuasion can be used, how groups figure out whether or not they're being effective by what they do online. So tell us a little bit about what you teach and what your research involves. Absolutely. Um... It's really, it's really interesting, and I am going to touch on something that Nick mentioned, which, was, which is the idea of a marketplace of ideas online. Um, when the internet was still fairly new, there was a lot of hope uh, among a lot of people that this was a new opportunity um, to go back to Jefferson's ideas of a marketplace of ideas where all of a sudden we're all going to have access to this, this medium that would allow us to share ideas, to speak to people who we've never been able to be in touch with before with um, a higher level of frequency and, um, and diversity. Uh, what's really interesting is what we've noticed online is that we tend to cling to our own. And so um, while we do still have this very unique opportunity to be exposed to this wide variety of, of information, um, we still kind of rely on our offline habits online. Um, and that's something that we're noticing. Something in particular that I like to, to teach about and, and talk about in my work are opinion leaders, which is a very old term. But the idea that there are these unique people in our social networks who we hold in higher regard. We consider them to be experts. But we also consider them to be like us. Um, opinion leaders are people who share our demographic characteristics, but also some of our psychographic characteristics, our behaviors, our likes, our dislikes. Um, and these people sometimes float between networks. And we're seeing this online as well. Um, but what can be particularly troubling is the idea of these echo chambers. And so um, particularly in politics, we've seen that those who are already active in politics, those of us who are interested in politics, tend to seek out our own. Um, we tend to follow people who share our opinions, who um, don't necessarily expose us to thoughts that are dissonant with our own. And, um, and that really poses very interesting questions about not only our access to information, because we tend to get a very tailored experience online, but also politicians access to us. Um, it changes the campaigning game uh, quite a bit. So if we know that there is a very specific group of people who are um, not only interested in politics but motivated and participating in politics, um, 
that changes the way that we mobilize people during campaigns. It changes the way that we, um, that we discuss politics. And it changes the way that we, um, that we learn about politics inevitably and, and, and talk with one another offline as well. Well, and it seems to me that in this recent election, it, it allowed a lot of people to be very surprised about, how, uh, about what the election results in the end turned out to be. I, I think that if you hear the Clinton people say, it all looks good, you know, it's going to be tight here and there and whatever, but everything looks good, and you hear this uh, coming at you every day, it might be that you would be a little bit more relaxed. Not that you wouldn't vote, but maybe you're a little less charged up. Whereas if, if uh, you're on the other side, maybe you feel that um, it's extremely important that you rally absolutely everyone you know to, to get out there and vote in, in more aggressively than you might have otherwise. So I think, I think that we're learning a lot of lessons that relate to this social media um, presence that people have, either willingly or they're just kind of observing it. Maybe you never post anything, ever, ever post anything, but you see what filters through your group of friends, and, and it does have the power of influence, does it not? Absolutely. Um, a great power of influence. And, and we're not just influenced um, in the moments where we participate. You're absolutely spot on. Um, we can simply be consuming the news, and still we rely on these unique people in our networks to, um, those are the people who we tend to retweet. Those are the people whose Facebook feeds we subscribe to. Um, and and it's, it's, very, it's become very natural to all of us to do that, to, uh, to, to seek out, whether we know it or not, to seek out those opinions that we share, um, that comfort us um, to a certain extent. And, um, and, and that just increases that potential for influence. Um, if we're not getting that opposing viewpoint, if we're not getting the whole story or the, the um, multiple perspectives on an issue, um, we can start to feel very extreme very quickly. Some of us are old enough to remember a time when there were three national news networks. You watched either ABC, CBS, or NBC for the nightly news, and it was delivered, at least many of us wanted to believe that it was delivered in a somewhat objective way and so on. But now we can sort ourselves out very, very easily into networks and channels that, that are most appealing to us. And what do you think this does for journalism? The question for both of you. Um, for journalism in these, in these days. Um, I'll let Nick start. You're in the journalism building. Oh, yeah, but I, I feel like you want to comment on this. What do I think about journalists? Today, yeah, well, they, they, they have a very much tougher job. And the first job, I suppose, is defining who is the journalist. I mean, if, if everybody who, who has a blog and a web page is a journalist, and, and I, I have both along with a Twitter feed, I can't keep up with Trump, but I try to get some out from time to time. Um, so does that make me a journalist? You know, I, I don't think so. Um, we, we also have a problem in maintaining, keeping the newspapers in business. Um, Rachel Maddow says we, we should all subscribe to a newspaper to keep them alive. Um, so that, that's an issue. Um, and then we have these journalism standards with all this other stuff so that, that when BuzzFeed comes out with a 35-page document to the dossier on Trump and his relations with the Russians that has yet to be confirmed by any mainstream media, uh, 
now we've got a, a swirl of conversation amongst journalists about, you know, should, should BuzzFeed have put that out there at all? And then, of course, Trump went after CNN, and all CNN said was that the uh, intelligence community was presenting to the president and the president-elect the fact that this material was going around, as it has been for nearly a year, uh, at least six months, on the Hill and elsewhere. Um, they didn't say what was in it. Um, they just said, you know, at what point does a rumor become news? Mm -hmm. It, it, you know, it, it, the fact that there is a rumor, not the content of the rumor, but the fact that there is a rumor with regard to somebody. Is that a legitimate thing for news media to do? And all kinds of questions like that are now being thrown out for journalists to deal with. I agree. Um, I feel for the last four years in particular, teaching news and the history of news, um, I've had to change it every year that I've taught it. Um, and just kind of tweak things in the stories that we tell. Um, I'm going to take a different spin on this question and come at it from perhaps a media literacy perspective and the public perspective. Um, I agree with Nick um, that, the, that the journalist's role hasn't necessarily changed, but we're facing a number of new battles and a number of new challenges. Um, from the public side as well, we need to navigate this. And that's a real challenge. There's been some interesting work um, done on strategies for uh, seeking out current events. And um, what they're finding is that students as young as elementary school, if we're not teaching people how to seek out current events, they're really lost. Um, and so research that's been done on teenagers and adolescents who are given uh, kind of free range on, on, online to seek out uh, current event information um, those who have had some sort of training, whether it be from their teachers or their parents, as to how to seek out that information are very successful. Um, they, um, they find the news very quickly, they find a variety of perspectives, and they can kind of complete that task. But for those of us who, um, who perhaps haven't had that training, um, it's really easy to get lost, and that's what people are finding is um, they'll start at government websites. They'll start with random Google searches. And what they're finding is that they burn out very quickly. And so um, that work is really pointing to the need to not only be thinking about things from the journalistic perspective, but the real need that we need to, um, uh, the time we need to spend on helping people navigate these new news situations, identifying um, persuasion versus information, um, perhaps fake news sites from real news sites, having conversations about when journalism or when journalists should break news and what is news. Um, these are conversations that the public has a right to be a part of, um, but we're not having those conversations enough. There was a Stanford study of uh, college students' ability to uh, separate the facts from the phonies, as, as I put it, and they were simply appalled that they had virtually no capacity for, for identifying fake news from, from real news. So uh, that's viewed as something that those of us who are educators uh, ought to try to work in a little bit into whatever else we're teaching. So, so what do you think the prospect is for these, say, the next five years? As you're educating a group of, of young University of Iowa students now and trying to help them understand what some of the complexities are, and um, what would be your, your greatest hope 
wonderful question. Um, my greatest hope, it actually probably won't change. It's been the same for a while, but it's to, to encourage and create critical thinkers. I think that's the most important thing. Um, and it might sound a little cliche, but being able to leave a college experience and um, encounter situations where you're exposed to information that you don't want to hear, um, or that might be, um, that might be um, a little disconcerting to you. Um, but managing those situations, navigating them, and figuring out what is the um, perhaps well-researched information as opposed to the rumor mill, um, uh, and figuring out how to bring those conversations into your discussion and perhaps your civic life. Um, those, have, those, I hope, will uh, continue to be my main goal for these students. Um, but it's a challenge. It's so much more fun to just read those BuzzFeed quizzes and participate in those quizzes. Um, and so it is a challenge to get students to, um, to really drill down and, and inspire that um, passion for seeking out information and, and challenging yourself. Within the group of students you know and work with uh, in uh, journalism and mass communication, um, not everybody who goes through that school is intending to be an investigative journalist. Some go into marketing, some uh, find future roles working in social media, maybe for a corporation, maybe doing their own blog. Um, what kind of variety do you see with the students you're working with? Oh, everything. One's in this room right now, um, uh, uh, which makes me very excited. So um, we see people working for ESPN. We've had students working for um, The Late Late Show. We've had students... Um, working at PR firms in Chicago and New York. I had a student last semester working on Broadway, doing PR for shows, and she just loved it. Um, so we do, we have a wide variety um, of students. And I, and I, as much as I um, push the passion for that investigative mind, um, I remind people that persuasion isn't necessarily bad either. There's a role for that in our life. Um, and it can be very powerful and very, um, very important in regards to how we we also navigate certain situations. So, um, yeah, there's, here's a plug for journalism. There's lots of careers out there. Don't listen to what anybody's telling you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, we won't have much time to talk about it, but when you talk about the power of persuasion, I know one of your main interests is sustainability mm -hmm. and uh, water quality and all of those kinds of things. And you find that through your activities online, you can, you can really bring people to the cause. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, Studying water sustainability in Iowa is a real, um, a real treat. Um, we have amazing land here. We have amazing farmers here. And, um, and it's very interesting to see um, farmers break down perhaps some traditional views on that community. Um, farmers are pushing forward with technology faster than some of our, our youth are, in fact. And so seeing how these traditional networks um, that we think of that are very offline, so neighbors informing each other on yield and, and soil tendencies and runoff and things like that are translating online. And, um, and we are seeing those networks um, move online. We're seeing a lot of potential to influence behavior, to have very important conversations about um, our future and the sustainability of our state. Wow. Well, thank you both, Nicholas Johnson and Kaisa Dahlrimpel. Thank you very, very much. And, and, um, and thank you, Joan, for welcome. what you do with this <laughs> You're program. You're welcome. Thank wonderful. you. Thank you.
And um, you have been listening to part two of Our Lives Online, and we'll have another couple of guests come up in just a moment. We'll be talking about new technologies that are every day changing the way we live our lives. So um, thank you very much for listening. This is World Canvas, uh, brought to you by International Programs at the University of Iowa, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from the recital hall of the Voxman Music Building in the central campus, and happy to have you with us for this program, Our Lives Online. So far, our focus has been mostly on communication and persuasion through the Internet, but in this segment, we'll be looking at new and rapidly changing technologies that are or have the potential to dramatically alter the way we live. I'm happy to introduce two great guests in this segment. Just next to me is Dan McGeehee, the director of the National Advanced Driving Simulator at the University of Iowa, and also professor in the Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering, also uh, emergency medicine. So thank you, Dan, for finding time to be with us. Thank you. And Mark Ginsburg, the owner of MC Ginsburg Objects of Art in Iowa City, is a well-known figure here in Iowa City, a great supporter of the arts and the university and many other things. So thank you, Mark, for being with us. So, Dan, uh, you head up this impressive research center, NADS, or the National Advanced Driving Simulator. What is a driving simulator, and why do we have it here? Yes, well, I think one thing that we share with Mark is that the driving simulation here at Iowa started about 25 years ago in the Center for Computer Aided Design. Mm -hmm. And we started that work 25 years ago, essentially taking pictures of cars and then making them move. Uh, and then somebody figured out, Professor Ed Haug, who's sort of the father of driving simulation, said, well, we have to hook a human driver to that. And when they steer, we have to be able to measure that motion. Uh, and then these technologies started to come about in the early 90s uh, that could help drivers, warn drivers, when they started to get into trouble. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we know from our research and from national research is that 94% of crashes have human error involved. So it's a really big problem. And it's a big public health issue, driving and car crashes. Uh, this year, 37,899 people were killed in car crashes in 2016. That's a really big number. In Iowa, 402 people died in Iowa in 2016, a 25% increase over 2015. So we're seeing this huge increases, big increases in car crashes. So that public health issue really is important to us. I see a number of my colleagues from the College of Public Health where we study crash epidemiology. That's a term that's sort of unique to Iowa and a few other universities. We try to understand what those causes are. Mm -hmm. So the technologies that we've been able to develop for the last 20 years here on the simulator, in our test cars, really are going to reduce those crashes. And that's where we're moving more towards higher levels of automation and so it's really exciting today to see technologies that we started in 1993, 1994, are now on a $21,000 Honda Civic uh, that prevent you from crashing, that put on the brakes automatically, that keep you in the lane when you get distracted. All of those technologies are here today and inexpensive. Yeah. And so I think we have to ask if our cars, we know that most of our cars have... Um, 
uh, airbags, we have better bumpers and so on, one would think that, that the fatality rate would be going down and down and down, as it apparently was for some time. What's the reason, do you think, for this big uptick, particularly here in Iowa in this last year? Well, it's primarily the economy and cheap gas. Uh, so the basic rule of car crashes is the more you drive, the more you crash. And so when gas was approaching $4 a gallon, was $4 a gallon, we all adjusted our driving because it's expensive. We ride the bus, we don't drive, and we also weren't as employed. So if you're not employed, you're not spending money, you're not driving, you're not driving to work, you're not going on vacations. Cheap gas comes down, employment goes up, and crashes go up. Then we also add in distraction, smartphones, uh, and speed. We're... Uh, cars are quieter today than they ever have been, and we don't really have the sense for how fast we're going. And then when you pair that with a smartphone and we're uh, checking our Facebook and we're sending out text messages, uh, we're checking our emails, we have to consume our attention with something. And historically, it's been music, it's been talking, it's been daydreaming. But distraction and inattention has been around for a really long time. We just sort of find a new way to fill it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you find, or, or do you, I, I don't know if this sort of research was being done when music first became a regular thing in automobiles. Perhaps this level of research wasn't being done. But do you think that just music in an automobile is or can be as distracting as the smartphone? Well, it's, it can be, certainly in our teen driving research when we see teenagers crank that music really loud and their head bobbing and all the rest, that's a distraction and uh, we code it as such. But if you look back at 1957, I think, uh, Nick, you probably uh, remember that year, uh, they actually had uh, turntables in the 1957 Chrysler Imperial. Uh, it was in uh, the glove compartment, or as our daughter used to say, that's the glove department. Uh, 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 if you take a look at uh, turntable, record player in a car, in the late 50s, that was an option in the early adopter car. So the early adopter car was the 1957 Chrysler Imperial was the car to have. In fact, it was the first car to have automation. It had electronic cruise control. Uh, and that was a huge innovation of that time. It wasn't just crank you know, down on the throttle and the car will just go a set speed. Mm-hmm. It would actually speed up and maintain a speed. And it was called autopilot. And the interesting thing about that term is that Tesla, one of the most advanced vehicles on the road today, their automation is called autopilot as oh, well. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So uh, there has been all kinds of um, progress in the development of vehicles, and we know that um, you are doing research here at at, uh, NADS with driverless vehicles. Uh, Tell us something about the driverless cars. Well, they're really more highly automated than driverless. Uh, Driverless cars, even though they occupy a lot of space in the media, Mm -hmm. is still way down the road in traffic. Now, where we do have driverless cars are in areas like Disney, where you have really slow-moving cars, trucks, or actually they're uh, narrow-gauge buses that hold like a dozen people, and they have very specific duties. So most of us have taken like an automated train, like in Detroit or in Seattle or Atlanta. Those are driverless trains. Uh, But they have a very, you know, they're on a track. There's nothing that can get in the way. But 
the first driverless vehicles are operating in really busy passenger or uh, pedestrian areas, but they go like three miles an hour, and they're very conservative, and they stop all the time, and they're actually pretty frustrating to ride because everything is a threat. So they're tracking many people and the trajectories of each person. Uh, and so because you go slow, you can stop really fast. Mm -hmm. And so those are the first true driverless cars. Mm -hmm. So in traffic, it's a completely different story. I like will see Uber is doing tests in Pittsburgh and San Francisco and um, Silicon Valley, but they always have at least one and usually two safety pilots. Mm -hmm. So to call those really driverless, they're accumulating a lot of miles, but they're looking at all sorts of different scenarios and how to sort of reprogram those Scenario. So it's going to be quite some time before we see a true driverless car. The exciting thing is that the technologies that are leading to that are in cars that are quite inexpensive. So like I said, the Honda Civic, um, the Chevy Cruze, these are cars that cost around $20,000, have automatic emergency braking. So if you're distracted and you're in stop and go traffic, the car will slam on the brakes immediately for you to avoid that crash. And that technology has been shown to to really reduce rear-end collisions, which are the most common kind of property damage crash, mm -hmm. by 40%. So across the board, that technology is there now. Lane-keeping systems uh, prevent you from leaving the lane, and this is the most fatal kind of scenario in the US. Uh, rural highway, you get distracted, you, get fall, you fall asleep, you're impaired somehow, you drift off the road, drop your wheel, overcorrect, uh, run into a ditch or a, uh, a tree. Those are the most common fatal crash scenarios that we see. So speed, alcohol, distraction are kind of the trifecta of uh, what makes us die on the roads. Well, so as I mentioned in the intro, you work with emergency medicine. Tell me how, how this all fits together. Well, we work in uh, public health and in medicine. And so one of the things about doing crash avoidance research and developing technologies to prevent crashes is that we put crash recorders, video crash recorders, in people's cars over the years. And one of the byproducts is that we capture crashes. And so uh, it's very seldom uh, that you get a real live human in a crash, conscious one. Uh, there are still cadavers that are used in, in uh, injury uh, research sometimes. But we, had, we captured some of the first severe injury crashes uh, uh, we get a view of the interior of the of the car. Some of you have, have seen some of the work that we've done here. Uh, so I went to my colleagues in, in emergency medicine and said, hey, look, we're actually watching people get hurt really badly, unfortunately, sometimes. So we started to track uh, those crashes, and we developed some injury prediction methods. And we actually had a uh, Iowa alum who's now at the University of Washington in the Department of Surgery, a guy named Rob Kaufman who in Seattle developed prediction algorithms, he was a physicist here at Iowa, uh, on the amount of crush in the vehicle and what that equated to the kind of injury. So we developed an app that's being used today by state troopers and first responders called Tramahawk, where they take strategic photos of a car and how much intrusion there is and where it's intruding into the occupant compartment and we can predict injuries really well. So at 11 o'clock last night, I get a page on my phone, and all of a sudden I'm transported uh, to the scene of a large truck crash, uh, as is the attending physician in the emergency department here. 
And so we will trade text messages back and forth and uh, assess from an engineering perspective what we see and then from a clinical perspective. We'll have the trooper who's on the scene take some additional photos. So already know 45 minutes before that uh, patient arrived at the university what kind of crash they had and what kind of injuries we might be expecting. Wow, that's phenomenal. Is this, is this app being used quite widely so far? Just being, uh, we've uh, been using it in eastern Iowa, and we're just expanding statewide this year. Wow, wow. So, so it all gets back to the computer yeah, design, so it's sort yeah. of studying a form yeah. before uh, and yeah. after uh, yeah. a crash, and so we can assess sort of how things are deformed and mm -hmm. what that might mm -hmm. be in terms of injury. Wow. Well, clearly we could talk about all these exciting things all night, but I, I did want to ask you a little bit about the implications of, of some of the, the innovations in transportation, implications about education that might be needed or training that might be needed or what's the impact on the economy if, um, uh, if someday these fully automated or nearly fully automated vehicles, um, you know, change... Uh, change the way we use automobiles, personal vehicles. Um, what will it mean, do you think, to personal autonomy and to the economy? Well, I think it's like in any part of, if you take a look at uh, the industrial uh, revolution, for instance, right? If you take a look at automation in a car factory, right, where the first generation of vehicles, the second generation, third generation, were all manually assembled. And then soon robots started to enter into the factory floor. And now... 80%, pick a number, uh, are assembling vehicles. Mm -hmm. I see the same kind of transformation occurring in transportation, not in the short term. I think we have a very long term before we're getting into robots operating trucks on Interstate mm -hmm. 80. Mm -hmm. uh, but a similar uh, kind of uh, evolution in terms of jobs is going to happen. People are going to become more managers of fleets. And so our mm -hmm. first generation of trucks might be more truck trains where you have a driver at the front of three or four tractor trailers that are elect electronically mm. coupled. And they may only drive on the freeway. And then much like in maritime where a ship captain is out at sea, when they come into a port like Seattle, a, a, a local pilot, maritime pilot, comes on to do the local docking. So if you imagine driving from Omaha to Chicago, you have sort of a terminal outside the city where a local pilot takes over, gets that uh, vehicle into the city, um, gets it docked, and then mm -hmm. once it's on the road, then you have a different kind of automation. Mm -hmm. So it becomes more management. If you take a look at uh, uh, remotely piloted vehicles in the military, they have six, seven, eight, sometimes ten vehicles flying that are monitored by one mm -hmm. pilot. Yeah. So if you take a look at that evolution, it may be mm -hmm. something similar. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's toss this over to you now, Mark, and talk a little bit about something you've been doing for these, these last years. You've long been involved in working with uh, art students, design students. Uh, through your business, you've invited students to come and work with you and see what it's like to really be in, a, in a, an art and jewelry business like your own. But in recent years, you've also gotten involved in 3D printers and solutions for medical doctors. We've been involved with 3D printing almost as long as Dan has been, uh, almost three decades. But it started in 87 for us. We had just purchased a laser welder. One of the biomedical engineers asked us if we would add beads around the titanium hip. And my first response was, don't you know we're a jewelry store? Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, yes. <laughs> but um, I've seen some of your restoration work on Etruscan Egyptian revival work, which uses beads. So we tested that thought, 
that method, and it worked. We added 525 beads to a titanium hip in 10 days. In, in, uh, otherwise, he would have had to wait almost six months for the implement manufacturer, the tool manufacturer, to actually add those. Um, so that was the first gotcha moment for me, is that we could take skill sets that exist in alien environments or environments you wouldn't normally predict as intersecting with biomedical, medicine, business, physics, consumer products, and extrapolate that or use that as a derivative to mix and match different disciplines. So we brought in uh, physics majors and we brought in people who had no schooling at all, arts majors, uh, engineers, and we started modeling and making prototypes and proof of concept. And it just grew from there. We used the 3D printers originally for wax injection molds, but the molding and modeling that we had, there is no prejudice in, in 3D printing. You can print any shape or any geometry. Unlike CNC's where you have an X, a Y, and a Z, maybe you have a diagonal, maybe you have a rotating platter, but in our world with 3D printing, there is nothing that's off limits. And I'll, I'll give you, for instance, I brought some, bought some models, but we had started working with otolaryngology a few years ago on recorrecting or correcting um, abnormal pediatric trachea. So when this child is born, they have a terminated trachea, they can't breathe, and the surgeon typically has about nine months to figure out what to do, but meanwhile, they have to do a tracheotomy. So they've, they've done an MRI or a CT scan of the trach. They give us the model or the CT, that it's a DICOM file they get off of their CT scans. We take that and we assemble all the points. So it's basically a fog. We connect these uh, triangular shapes so that they connect and make a solid. And that's where 3D printing comes in. Uh, so we print the solid and we actually put a sheath around it so the surgeon is allowed to go in and pre-game basically the surgery. It was a method that's unknown. Otherwise, you look at the, the CT or the MR imaging and you might have shadows, you might not have a complete 360 degree uh, view of the anatomy, but by taking the anatomy and actually three-dimensionalizing the, the model or the CT or any of the imaging that you might take, uh, we're able to help the surgeon finish the surgery more effectively. So I'm gonna show you. I brought a two-year-old's heart. So this is the actual anatomy. Um, I'll pass it, it's like an eggshell, it's a little brittle. And maybe we'll pass it out so you can see. But the surgeon was actually allowed or able to take the heart, anatomically correct, and figure out what direction the tool was gonna enter the heart how they were going to patch the heart, and they actually found a hole that didn't uh, present itself in the CT scan. So we actually think we're helpful in, in helping the surgeon discover a method to you know, focus in. Not only is this good for the, uh, for the surgeons, typically, to go in and have some advanced warning or pre-gaming of the, of the surgery, obviously it's good for the patient if they're able to more effectively think about their approach. Um, unfortunately, we're still going through some of the hoops with insurance companies. This isn't a challenge necessarily for me as much as it is for UIHC or any other research facility or hospital because insurance won't cover this. They'll cover a CT scan or they'll cover an MR image, but they won't cover a three-dimensional model. So we continue to work through those. Mm -hmm. Relating it back to jewelry, the father of this child who actually had successful heart surgery decided to make platinum cufflinks. So he's truly wearing his daughter's heart on his sleeve, <laughs> which is heartwarming to me. Yeah, yeah, my goodness. Um, now, you don't also make 
the, uh, you can't produce the materials that might actually be a replacement we section don't do any to bio a, materials. Yeah. But the one thing, you know, when you talk about that, uh, the one thing I did bring is, uh, speaking of automobile accidents, um, a silicone. So we're able to print in 10 different medias. Um, this was a gentleman who was in a motorcycle accident. We actually scanned his good ear and we mirrored over to the other side of his face where he lost his ear. And so the surgeon was able to use this model as an exact anatomically correct um, plastic surgery. So on, you know, on our lower level, we continue to, to you know, promote the retail business. On our second and third level, we're actually working with the business school, the medicine, engineering. And although there are 3D printers, Dan has one, engineering, physics, studio arts, it's difficult to get the shops to do some of the students, they'll do the students' work, but to do any work, faculty and staff outside of that. So we fill an interesting gap. Um, and we can't, we can't advertise it because in downtown Iowa City, it's zoned non-industrial, which is ironic because across the street you've got a major industry. Uh, but in any case, we're not allowed to advertise that we have any kind of manufacturing capabilities. So it's all been art. But we did drop jewelry in 1987 because mm -hmm. we were focusing or shifting more into the artistic side and the machining side. Wow. This is, it's incredible to hold that in your hand. And um, uh, how often would you say you produce materials like this for pre-surgery? We do three models a week on average right really? now. Really? Yeah. We'd like to do more, but, uh, you know, we've yeah. got a small staff. Sure. The thing is, you know, try, the files are so large, trying to get the files over to us when you're mm -hmm. talking about 100 meg files for a CT scan, depending on how many layers they send to us. Um, right now, we, we have connected to fiber, so we are able to bring it over a little mm -hmm. more quickly than, than we had in the past. But interestingly, for us and for the students, whether you're private or public, whether you're inside the student environment or this, the university environment or not, we will work with many different public and private entities to make sure that we can continue to accelerate mm -hmm. not only the research part of this, which can be shelled with companies like Megtronic or Covidian or Stryker who have, you know, a, a tool out there or uh, something that's inserted into the body uh, that's got 12 years left of IP mm -hmm. and so they don't want anybody competing with it. We actually can insert ourselves and develop the prototype or proof of concept to at least a utility patent level. Mm -hmm. We have a little more leverage with uh, the research department here. Wow. But, Wow. It's, it's exciting work for us, and it's brought me to groups like this, and yeah, uh, we yeah. continue to experiment and research. Mm -hmm. but and it, you didn't see this coming um, 40 years ago. Well, I was closed off to the idea of it coming uh, mm -hmm. until it, it, it kind of presented itself, uh, you know, thrown in my face. But mm -hmm. now we work with the Bell and Blank program and developmentally disabled students at the University of Iowa through the REACH program, and we'll continue to explore different, uh, different areas where we can put these unique campuses together. We're working with, and I don't know if, if she's still here, we're working with um, the water quality through hydro, hydroponic farms on our rooftops. So we've got a 1.2 or 1.3 million square feet of surface area in downtown Iowa City on the roofs. Mm -hmm. And so we're exploring hydroponic farming. So this, we're making 3D valves. We're doing that inside. We're allowing the students to come in with environmental science and biology and chemistry work with worm teas, so it goes beyond 3D, although 3D for us was an entry level into um, a, a very large, disparate tank of thinkers. Wow, incredible, huh? Um, is there any, any way in which you guys would have interactions? Can you think of ways in which uh, NADS would ever 
interface with the kinds of well, things we, that Mark is doing? We build uh, boxes into our specially instrumented vehicles. We are now 3D printing uh, parts uh, for these. Mm -hmm. Right now we have one of the studies I'm doing with a colleague, uh, Stephen Bake, uh, is he has 40 uh, pinhole, excuse me, uh, chip cameras that surround the driver and we create a 3D model of the driver in real time so we can tell when they fall asleep, when they're looking away from the road. We know what their, their, their body position is right before a crash. Mm -hmm. uh, so we build all of the little parts and 3D print them. So students, as I was telling Mark earlier, it's similar to they never remember the first time they used a cell phone yeah. or a computer. They're now using 3D printers like it's just walking down the hall and printing a, a laser print. Uh, so their mental model of what it takes to build something is very mm -hmm. different today than it was, you know, not even a couple of years ago. And maybe before it gets to Dan, we have an opportunity to work with the students or those doing research with him to experiment with their ideas to see if they might work. We haven't done that, but mm -hmm. I mean, that's mm -hmm. something that's out there that's possible. Yeah. Wow, this is a very, very, um, I, I know that you're a guy who's interested in lots of different things. You've been very uh, innovative throughout your, your career and also your work and, and life here in Iowa City. But, but this has to be much, much, much different as, as an enterprise than creating beautiful jewelry. It, it keeps me engaged because it's, it's fluid. Mm -hmm. And uh, surrounding myself with uh, those who have unique ideas and unique approaches to those ideas. And we're... We're testing all types of things, not just for us, but we're seeing all kinds of experimentation here on campus that allows us to be more creative thinkers as well. And I think by embedding studio artists and 12-year-olds and 16-year-olds along with these uh, other types of, of thinkers allows not only the mathematician and the scientist and the engineer to understand how art works, but help the artist understand how science and, and math works and before there was a STEM or a STEAM, we were, we were applying some of these, but uh, I do think there is the possibilities of biomechanics and working with vessels, and we talk about you know, molecular knots right now, how does that uh, apply to um, 3D modeling? Well, when you're looking at printing a, a blood vessel or printing any organ, the, the, right now the challenge is to make sure it doesn't collapse on itself. Yeah. Well, now there's studies on Molecular, tying molecular knots, and those can act as scaffolding so that the material doesn't, doesn't fall on itself, doesn't crush itself in. And those are fascinating to me. We're not printing that material, but uh, we can experiment with that type of nanotechnology and quantum technology inside of our space. So we have the machinery and allow those who have that academic discipline to come in and experiment with us and for us to see what's going on as well. So it does keep my mind a little more malleable. Mm. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow, this has been really, really great. Thank you both, Dan McGeehy and Mark Ginsberg. Uh, yeah, how exciting. And, and thank, uh, thanks to all of you for joining us for this discussion this afternoon. Um, we invite you to join us here each month for World Canvas programs at the Boxman Music Building. Our next program is on February 20th, and the title is Resilience Over Trauma. I think it'll be a really interesting program, and I hope you can join us. Uh, so for international programs, I'm Joan Kerr. For all of our guests this evening, we say thank you, and we'll see you next time. Good night. <laughs>